Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Again, reading at verse 13. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. And it is our desire to glorify you in our responses to it. I pray that you would take the feebleness of preaching and that you would use it to build up your people. Uh, We ask for your blessing and your presence with us in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You see a little uh, picture in your outline uh, that is called an ossuary. And uh, here is a, a picture of this. This came to light in April of 2002, and it sparked interest as well as controversy uh, all over the world. Uh, It is now known as the James Ossuary. And uh, what they did back in those days in the first century was that they would uh, bury their dead in a sepulcher, uh, usually some kind of a cave. And when it had decomposed sufficiently where there was nothing left but bones, then they would gather the bones and put them into a box like this. It seems like kind of a strange practice, but that was the way they honored the dead in the first uh, century and following. Actually, it's just a very small window of time that they used uh, these uh, ossuaries back there. And when this came to life, the reason it sparked so much uh, interest and controversy was because of the words that were inscribed on the side. And you can see on your outlines the uh, picture of the inscription, and then they took, took it out and showed the actual shape down below. And let me give you what the translation is. It says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And as soon as it was discovered, it went through a litany of scientific examinations to see whether this was a hoax or whether it was real. And it was declared to be authentic by both international as well as Jewish antiquities experts. And then later on, there was another expert that came along and he said, no, this is a forgery because the second part of that phrase has different uh, patina, those are the little aging marks within it, a different patina than the front uh, part of that phrase. And several other scholars joined the fray, both pro and con, and it has been a fascinating uh, debate to follow over the last uh, few years. Uh, the man who sold the ossuary uh, was charged with having uh, sold other forgeries in the past and was actually imprisoned uh, over that and was awaiting trial. I don't know what the results of that uh, trial were, but that just settled it for many people. Ah, forger, this is forgery. Somebody, some expert has said that it uh, was not real. 
But there are others like Herschel Shanks, who is the editor of Biblical Archaeology Review and the Biblical Archaeology uh, Society, who have interviewed numerous people, including the associates of this guy, uh, the history of this. They've interviewed a lot of experts, and they're absolutely convinced that this is authentic. Uh, uh, the uh, leading expert in the world on stone chemistry did a huge study in 2006 and he came to the conclusion uh, that there is very easy explanation of the different patina in the second part as opposed to the first part. And a very fascinating study. And he came to the conclusion that the patina on both sides could not have formed in less than 100 years. And then there were microbiologists who entered the fray and they looked at the uh, artifacts that were left by the, uh, the bacteria and they've come to similar uh, conclusions. So anyway, they have said, if it is a forgery, it had to have been done long ago and had to have sat in pretty perfect conditions in a cave to be able to develop these uh, patina. Uh, and uh, there have been many others who have joined the fray, both uh, pro and con, very heated articles, some people getting very upset. Now, what is at stake uh, on this uh, archaeological find? Well, there are a number of uh, Roman Catholics who have said that if this is a genuine find, then it destroys the Roman Catholic doctrine that the brothers and sisters were actually cousins or uncles of Jesus. And so they have a vested interest in disproving this, although there have been a number of Roman Catholic archaeologists who have said, man, the evidence has become so overwhelming, especially in 2006, that we're convinced that it is authentic. Uh, there is pride at stake because a number of people have uh, written articles and now they've got to defend their articles against uh, other people. And uh, I have not um, myself... Uh, been completely convinced one way or another, although I lean, especially since 2006, in the direction of saying this really does look like it probably uh, is an authentic artifact from the time of James. Now, I bring all of this up because I want to reinforce once again that you cannot prove anything with archaeology. A lot of people think, oh, archaeology proved such and such uh, or has disproved such and such. And one of the things that I have discovered over years of having read many, many archaeology journals is that for every archaeological find, you'll get one interpretation over here and you'll get one, two, three other interpretations that contradict it. There is nothing in life that is absolute except for the Bible, the Word of God. Now, those other things are very interesting, and I will be using them as illustrations uh, in this sermon, but that's all that they can be. It's illustration of what the Bible itself already has firmly established and to declare it. And our faith needs to be anchored in that Word. Now, today I'm going to do something that I have not really done before. I want to preach a biographical sermon and we're going to continue this sermon on James next week, Lord willing. I have no idea how this is going to come off. But the last time I preached in Acts, we were introduced to this remarkable character, James. And I thought it would be very fruitful if we dug into his life a little bit more because there's been all kinds of controversy that is raised up. Uh, liberals have said that there was an absolute disjunction in Acts 15 and in Galatians between James and Paul. And I've included actually an outline, which we won't even look at, uh, from James chapter 2, um, the second part of your outlines there. 
that I believe demonstrates uh, very clearly that James and Paul are not opposed at all. Uh, They fit together very, very much. And uh, yet, because of all of the controversy that is out there, I thought it would be good to dig into his life to give you a little bit of an idea of what this James stands for. He was passionate about the same God that Paul was passionate about. He was passionate about the same gospel that Paul preached. And I want you to just relax. You're going to have to be an expert Bible flipper to be able to keep up with all of the scriptures that I'm going to be reading this week and especially next week. But uh, that's okay. We'll post it on the web. And I just want you to sit back and I want you to think, what was James like? And then as the picture of James emerges, let's then start making applications from his life into our life. And because we're preaching through the book of Acts and we've come up to Acts chapter 15, uh, I thought it was appropriate to start with the first point that he was a very remarkable man. And Acts 15 definitely demonstrates that. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church has said that uh, Peter was the first pope. Now, one of the things I found interesting when I was doing a little bit of research on this is the number of um, early church fathers who said that James was the leader, not Peter. Uh, And that is kind of uh, an interesting contradiction to the thesis that uh, Peter was the pope right from the beginning. And they say that James was put into this position uh, by special revelation. Let me just give you some hints as to why scholars, just from the New Testament evidence itself, say that James really was the dominant leader. Uh, There is uh, more than one James, so it can be a little bit confusing. But in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, we have James, the brother of John, who was killed. That's a different James. But then in verse 17, after Peter escapes from prison, he says to the gathered uh, people in that prayer meeting, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. You read some commentaries on that and you will see that they show the only James that this could be referring to is James, the brother of Jesus, and that Peter is acknowledging James's leadership in that passage. In Galatians 2, verse 9, Paul lists this order amongst the leaders in Jerusalem. James, Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and John, and then he calls them all pillars of the church in Jerusalem. So it's not as if Peter and John aren't leaders there. They are. They're all three pillars, but in the order in which Paul gives them, it's James, then Peter, then John. In Galatians 2, verse 12, Paul says it was James who sent the delegates to help him in Antioch. Those are the same delegates that Acts uh, chapter 15, verse 1 says came to Antioch and just caused havoc. Uh, They caused all kinds of consternation in the church uh, 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 of that that time. And uh, that's what set the tension up for a while between Paul and and James, and that tension really only existed between verses 1 and 5, because if you look at verse 24 of Acts 15, he makes it very clear uh, that they gave no such commandment to these people to be spreading this news that the Gentiles had to be circumcised. But the point here is that James was the one who sent uh, those delegates to Paul. In uh, Galatians uh, chapter 2, it makes it very clear that three years before and this would be about the time of Acts 15, uh, excuse me, Acts 12, verse 25. James, Peter, John, and Paul had all gotten together and they were completely in agreement over the circumcision question. And uh, the, uh, again, uh, James comes to the highlight. 
Uh, Acts 15, verse 3. James sums up the General Assembly by giving the deciding speech, writing the letter, sending out representatives to help Paul. He clearly is the dominant leader of the church. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say what a number of early um, church leaders said, that he was the bishop of the church, or some said the pope of the church. I don't believe there was a the bishop or the pope at that time. But clearly, he had enormous influence. He was a man of character. He was a man of very strong personality that, uh, uh, that people looked up to. In Acts 21, verse 18, James is the one who leads the assembly at that point. And when Paul goes to the general assembly, it says this. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Then just say he went to the general assembly. It says when he went in, he went in to James and all the elders were present. He is the presiding officer. And so when you look at all of the New Testament evidence, all of the evidence from early church history, it becomes clear that James had enormous respect of the people. Usually, his opinions, his policies uh, carried the day. Although he did not write as much Scripture as Paul did, he was an inspired prophet. He wrote the book of, of, of James. And as a prophet, there was a special authority that he carried. He was the brother of Jesus, according to Matthew 13, verses 55 through 56. And since he was the next oldest brother under Jesus, and both Matthew and Mark passages that I've listed there in your outline make it clear that he was the, uh, the oldest younger brother, that means that he had lived with Jesus longer than anybody else except for Mary, and that would have given him some clout. He was a man of prayer, and we'll talk a little bit about this next week, especially Acts 1.14 and last chapter of uh, James. But early church writings from the second century and on say that his prayers had incredible power, the kind of power that the last chapter of James uh, talks about. In fact, uh, <clears throat> even unbelievers saw him as having such prevailing power that uh, there are a number of testimonies uh, of the fact that when he would walk around uh, to different places, people would try to touch the hem of his garment, no doubt to his irritation. You know, what are these guys doing? You know, it's a superstitious thing. But they saw this man as just being an incredible. God always seemed to be answering uh, his prayers. <clears throat> I just got a new book this past week. It's a dictionary of ancient rabbis uh, put out by Neusner. And I just for fun looked it up and I was shocked. James is in there. And uh, that's very unusual because in the oral tradition of the Pharisees and the Talmud, they just tend to reject uh, any testimony about Christians. But here he is, and they recognize he was such a man of prayer, so respected by the people that even rabbis were healed. Were, it mentions two of the rabbis who were healed, even though they were not uh, Christians, uh, through his prayers. He prayed on his knees in the temple so much that Hegesippus, a historian who wrote in the 100s A.D., said that the skin on his knees became calloused and thick and looked like camel's knees. And so he was incredibly respected as being a man of prayer by both believers and unbelievers. Let me give you some quotes from ancient authors who saw James as an amazingly holy and upright man. The Jewish historian Josephus, and uh, he lived during the time of James, and keep in mind, he was not a Christian. Okay? He was a Jewish historian. He said this, these things, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, these things happened to the Jews in requital. That means in retaliation or punishment. In requital for James the righteous 
who was a brother of Jesus, known as Christ, for though he was the most righteous of men, the Jews put him to death. Now, Josephus identifies him as James the Righteous, as if that's the only identifier that people are going to need to know who he's talking about. This guy is so famous, all he has to do, there's a lot of Jameses out there, but all he has to do is say James the the Righteous. Some people uh, refer to him as James the Just. But uh, the, 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 the same uh, concept. And then Josephus says that this James was the most righteous of men. Didn't say he was perfect, but he was the, the most righteous of men. And I think it gives you just a little bit of a feel for the kind of stature that James had grown to have outside of the church. We're not talking even inside here. It's amazing. The early church historian Eusebius, who was born around 275 A.D., said, so remarkable a person must James have been, so universally esteemed for righteousness, that even the most intelligent of Jews felt this was why his martyrdom was immediately followed by the siege of Jerusalem. Now, obviously, they were wrong, because the Bible says that uh, Jerusalem was destroyed because they rejected their Messiah. They crucified uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, it shows how these people outside the church were viewing this man. This is a guy that you really need to respect. Even the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were so worried about Christianity, the way in which it was spreading, that they they captured uh, um, James and they told him, look, everything will be okay if you tell these people to stop following Jesus. They knew if he did that, this is the kind of influence that James would have. He refused. He was martyred. He was thrown uh, over the top of the... Uh, uh, the, the temple over the, the pre- uh, precipice. <clears throat> um, Jerome says much the same thing. Here's wh- how one author summed up the esteem with which um, he was held in these words. Holy, the righteous one, bulwark of the people, Jerusalem falling on account of his death. And he lists some other titles there. These are strong words and not to be lightly dismissed and are consistent with what all sources say about him. It is important to point out that our sources are not presenting James as just the head of Christianity, but the popular Jewish leader of his day, the Zadik par excellence, whose death brought the downfall of Jerusalem. And so again, I'm I'm trying to convey a little bit of a picture of the influence that James had. So, when James sent these messengers in Acts 15, verse 1, and Galatians 2 talks about that to Antioch, the people would have just, if James sent this, I guess we need to listen to what James had to say. You can see the kind of consternation that this brought uh, to Paul. This man was really, really respected. And you can see why in chapter 15, in verse 24, they had to make it very clear. We gave no authorization, James nor none of the other apostles, for these people to be talking uh, the way that they did. He was a man of miracles, and I won't go into that. If the ossuary is accurate, and there was a mathematician who recently went through the growing evidence, and he said uh, uh, the chance of it not being authentic is three in one million. Who knows whether he is right or not. But if it's true, again, that shows the respect that the people had for him. And here's the punchline. Here's the punchline. Despite all of that popularity, James was an incredibly humble man. He did not allow that to, you know, to get to his head. In his book of James, James calls upon the people to humble themselves under the hand of God. He, he tells them God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
And he certainly modeled that. He did not get all bent out of shape with the misunderstandings that happened between Paul and himself. In fact, during the discussion of this um, uh, Acts 15 conference, he allowed in verse 7, he allowed many other people to be talking before he gets up and talk. And then he allows Peter in verses 7 through 13 and, and, uh, and Paul and Barnabas to, to talk. And to me, this shows the humility that James uh, had. And Jonathan and I were talking yesterday about the conference he went up to in Indianapolis. And one of the speakers he really liked was Jerry Bridges. But in that talk, Jerry Bridges said the opposite of faith is not unbelief. The opposite of faith is pride. Faith is a trust in someone else. Pride is a trust in myself. Faith is confidence in someone else, whereas pride is confidence in myself. And so, if, 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 if James had this kind of humility, it's no wonder he had the kind of incredible faith that I didn't put into your outline, but is demonstrated uh, in the New Testament as well as in the history of this period from the early church. <clears throat> Though he has authority as a prophet, what does James appeal to? He appeals to the revelation given by Peter in Acts 15, verse 14. He then appeals to Scripture in verse 15. And in his book of James, he is, it's so clear, he is a man of the book. He is a man who is under authority. Never once does he pull out the power card, hey, I was a brother of Jesus, I ought to know. He never once appeals to his physical relationship with Jesus. Instead, in the book of James, he calls himself in verse 1 of chapter 1, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, it's a slave of Jesus. That's how low he saw himself as being. In that same book, he appeals to his readers as my brethren. No hint of lording it over them. No hint that he's acting like the popes have acted uh, in the past. And the application that I make from this first point is that no matter what your station in life might be, you must have a servant's heart. You must have a servant's heart. Now, what does it mean to be a servant? A servant is a person who's looking to the interests of those that he's serving rather than his own interests. He's not doing this just mercenarily. Uh, he's looking to do everything he can to make his master succeed, to, to, to make things uh, better for the people that he is serving. And that should be our goal in life. It was clearly James's goal in life. Uh, you guys don't know Mark Moss, but he was a friend of ours at Trinity. And he used to, one of the things he said is, you can tell if you've got a servant's heart by how you react when somebody treats you like a servant. And that, that is very true. James in his life definitely manifested a servant's heart. Now, for those of you who have the opposite problem, you feel like you're nothing. You feel like you don't have anything you can contribute to the kingdom. You just feel very discouraged. What do I have to offer? I want to go to Roman numeral 2. James wasn't used by God because he was something. God made him something by his grace and by his grace alone. And when you look at his humble beginnings, there's no reason that his background could have had any contribution to why the world thought highly of him. None whatsoever. In fact, it's an amazing thing that they did think highly of him. Let's just quickly go through some of these points. First of all, there was the town he was from. You could not get more disrespect than to be from the town of Nazareth. And I'm not exaggerating here because the term Nazarene 
uh, was proverbial for the offscouring of the earth. It was proverbial for that. This is one of the reasons why the Pharisees kept calling Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. It was an insult. Of course, they wanted to say that. But the people of the church took that upon themselves. Yeah, he is Jesus of Nazareth. And even though he came from a place that was nothing, he's going to take over the world eventually. And so uh, they didn't worry about that. And by the way, the, the word Nazareth and Nazarene have nothing whatsoever to do with Nazarite. Okay, Nazarite was those people that grew their hair long, didn't eat grapes and stuff like that. Uh, and that was an honorable thing. But Nazarene, totally different, uh, totally different word. And just as the word Sodom, Sodomite became identical with homosexual and the term to Corinthianize meant to fornicate because of how much immorality was going on in the, in the city of Corinth, uh, the NIV uh, study Bible uh, uh, points out Nazarene was virtually a synonym for despised, unquote. That's why Nathaniel says in John 1, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? The implication is no. <laughs> you know, that's not a place that has a good reputation. It would be like saying, can any good thing come out of Sodom? That's exactly, you know, the kind of implication that would be there. And the province of Galilee was not that much better. Among many Jews, Galileans were disdained. They didn't talk right. Their thick accents didn't sound like, you know, the polished people on CNN and ABC and NBC, you know, or anybody else that had any clout. These guys couldn't talk right. And that's why the, the, the Pharisees said, no, no teacher can come from Galilee. Certainly no prophet can come from Galilee. That's John 7, verse 52. And so James had an upbringing that would have made it very difficult for him to win the respect of the world which is not our goal anyway, and that was not his goal, but he got it. God gave it to him. The application that I would make is that geography and background need not dictate calling. And unfortunately, I've seen people do this all of the time in many different areas of life. Uh, in elections, uh, people will say, there's never been a successful bid for president from such and such a state. I'm thinking so. Uh, or no presidential candidate uh, who has been a congressman or who has had XYZ has won the election in the last 50 years and he cannot win it now. In India, your Nazareth might be that you were born into a lower class family or that you came from a given uh, province. When my father immigrated from Germany, he was age uh, 16, he went to Canada and God called him to be a missionary in Ethiopia. It's a very specific calling that was upon his life. Only the problem was he didn't speak any English or very few words of English. He didn't have the money to go to Bible school. And if he did go to Bible school, how would he make it through with his language uh, impairment? And uh, he was discriminated against. And so there were people who just told him, oh, don't even think about that. There's no point in your doing uh, doing that. In fact, uh, you know, during the duration of the war, all of my uncles and my dad were under house arrest because they were from Germany. And so this was a difficult time for them to go through. And yet he believed he was called by God. God pays for what he orders. And sure enough, uh, the money came through uh, for him to go to Bible school. Uh, he ended up graduating the top of his class. He worked in Ethiopia for 30 years. And what people said was impossible. And just in one, one of the stations he was at, he planted over 1,000 churches. The Lord worked through him, even though in his own eyes, he was nothing. God delights to take those who are are small in their own eyes and to use them. Now, your Nazareth or your Galilee may be a speech impediment. 
or an inability to read very well or that you didn't get a very good education when you were growing up uh, or something else. Don't let that stop your calling. You see, Jesus, Jude and James all had the same disadvantages of geography, speech impediment and reputation. And yet they were part of that revolution that turned the world upside down. And you can be as well. Amen. Okay. Now, that immediately answers the humble beginnings of James being the son of a carpenter. It was an honest trade, but it was hardly a lucrative trade. Uh, it was not paid that well. Most of the, uh, when you read in the Old and the New Testament, most of the carpenters were from uh, outside of Israel, like uh, even some of the very skilled artisans that David and Solomon hired, or there was the forced labor of the Gibeonites. Some of them were water carriers, but there was carpenters amongst them as well. Now, what was going on here is that Jesus and James and Jude were elevating this uh, to a higher status, a higher level. And there are several applications that could be made. The first is, God obviously values working with our hands. He values trades. He assigned labor to Adam and Jesus spent 30 years of his life working as a carpenter. We must never take the idea that ministry is somehow elevated in a way where it's service to God, but the rest is secular. No, no. All of life needs to be seen as sacred before God. All of the work that we engage in, if it is a calling that God says is a legitimate calling, is something that can be done as a service to him. And that's why Romans 13 calls civil magistrates ministers of God. A civil magistrate is every bit as much a minister of God as I am a minister of God. We're all called to a variety of different callings. So don't make a sacred, secular dichotomy. A second application is that manual labor, I think, is one of the greatest means of preparing uh, people for the pastoral ministry. It wasn't just Jesus and James and Jude who took this route into ministry. Paul did too. His trade was a tent maker. Apollos' trade was a tent maker. That's how he got in. You look at Peter and uh, several of the apostles. They were fishermen. They had learned how to work with their hands, how to earn money the regular way uh, before they went into uh, this calling as a minister. And unfortunately, there are too many ministers out there nowadays who don't know one side of a hammer from the other side of a hammer. They've never learned skills that they can pass on to their children. And I think there's so many things that can be learned from this manual labor. I don't think it's good to thrust a person into ministry if all he has done is been in school all of his life. He's going straight from college into the pastoral ministry. I don't think for one thing he can connect with the people very well. And then some people bring objections and they say, well, what about Pris Virgin? One of the greatest preachers ever. And he started preaching when he was a teenager. And my response is, well, I didn't make it right. You've got to look to the Bible for what's right. But secondly, I would say it doesn't mean that you can't preach and that you can't minister the word. Uh, Jesus ministered the word when he was 12 years old. He was in stunning dialogues with the leaders of Israel, you know, in the temple. And so you can minister the word and dialogue the word to your heart's content anytime throughout the rest of your life. But what I'm talking about is preparation for the office of minister. Uh, though I worked for years as a janitor in a sawmill and then as a, a factory worker 
And as a painter, I think some of the best preparation for ministry that I ever had was when I worked as an orderly in a nursing home. Now, that was backbreaking work, you know, getting up 30, 30 people who are incontinent and senile and cleaning them up and brushing their teeth, getting them to the bathroom, getting them dressed into the wheelchairs, feeding them, getting them cleaned up again, putting them to bed and getting it all done within that shift. That's the tough thing, you know, is, is uh, how in the world do you have enough hours in the day to be able to do all of these things? But, you know, working with those Senile geriatrics who were incontinent was a, a humbling service. It was one of the best, most precious memories that I have. One of the best preparations for ministry that I could have gone through. A third application is that you shouldn't be prejudiced against certain types of employment for your sons and daughters. Now, I have known people who have been pressured into areas of life that they hated doing just to please their parents. Their parents wanted them to be in a more prestigious job or they wanted to follow in their own footsteps, but they weren't equipped for it. They weren't gifted for it. They didn't enjoy it. They had a real desire to be involved in this calling of life. And I think we need to be very sensitive to the whole issue of calling. As I said before, God gives a wide variety of callings and all of them are equally honorable in God's sight. And so we need to be helping our children to say, how do I discern God's calling upon my life, not just plugging them into what we think would make the most money? And some people are just uh, prejudiced uh, against trades. Did you know that two of the soon-to-be presidents of the United States were turned down as potential husbands for daughters because the parents of the daughters thought these guys were, you know, just too poor. They'd never make anything of their lives. Uh, what's remarkable is that both of these girls came from the same town of Bedford, which in those days was 15 miles from Cleveland. President Hayes become an ardent suitor of one of the girls, and the parents opposed the idea of marriage on the grounds that, quote, Hayes was poor and gave evidence of hardly sufficient ability to warrant risking their daughter's future, unquote. Uh, the other girl had a suitor who later became uh, President Garfield, and the parents turned him down because he too was poor and he did not, quote, have bright prospects of his future, unquote. <laughs> and what's remarkable about that, you would think, OK, that was a strange thing for it to happen once. But, you know, for two of those girls to be coming from a small town of 500 people, that's that's a pretty remarkable coincidence. Here were short-sighted parents. Their focus was on the background of this person. They think, oh, he's kind of mean. I want somebody really sophisticated for my daughters. And uh, they, they missed out. No, of course, it was God's will or it would have happened, right? But um, uh, still, we must avoid such prejudices against trades for our children. And by the way, just because Joseph trained his children in a trade does not mean he didn't give them an academic education. If you read the book of James, you read the book of Jude, it's clear, it's obvious, they gave them great academic uh, credentials as well for life. So you don't have to have a disjunction between academics and a trade. They can both be brought together. Now, the last application is that you must not limit what God might do through you if you are the one who has come from a lowly uh, background. Maybe you are one of those suitors or will be. Uh, did you know that Napoleon was number 42 in his class? Uh, did you know that Sir Isaac Newton was the next to lowest in his class? In fact, he flunked uh, geometry because he didn't do the problems according to the method of the book. 
course, he later on wrote the book the way it should be written, right? <laughs> there was a six-year-old who came home from class with a letter and the parents opened it up and the letter basically said, you ought to pull your child from um, class. He's stu- too stupid to learn. And his name was Albert Einstein. Okay, Albert Einstein. Now, here, here's the thing. Frequently, we begin to believe the statements that people make about us. You're not going to make anything. Or what, whatever uh, background you have or the career that you have, that, that's not really significant. If you want to be real significant, you need to be a president. You need to be doing this or be do- doing the other thing. But think of the little slave girl in Syria who made a nation-changing statement out of her mouth. It took some boldness for her to do this. Oh, that my master you know, could go to, to see the prophet. However it was that she said it. I can't quote it exactly. But as a result of her statement, Naaman became converted. Because of his conversion, Syria became much more favorably disposed to Israel and much less of a threat to Israel. I love the story of Bobby Hill in World War One. Uh, he was just a, a little kid and he had read a biography of the medical hospital that Albert Schweitzer had set up in the jungles of Africa and the struggles he went through to establish the the hospital and to get uh, medical supplies and it was difficult. So he wanted to do his part. So he saved up some money, bought a bottle of aspirin (laughs) and he sent this um, bottle by airmail to Lieutenant General Richard C. Lanzi commander of Allied Air Forces in Southern Europe, and he asked if any of your airplanes could parachute this aspirin down to Albert Schweitzer, you know. And there was a, a, t- a radio station in Italy that thought this was just great, and they issued an appeal based on this story and raised $400,000 worth of medical supplies. And uh, the French and the Italians each supplied a plane to ship the stuff over there and uh, take the boy with them. And when Schweitzer met the boy, he said, I never thought a child could do so much for my hospital. Now, when James was just a carpenter, God put his call upon him. Now, this was later. We're going to be looking at the time of his conversion. God put his call upon him to the ministry and it would have been very easy for James to say, who am I? Who's going to listen to me? All I am is a person from Nazareth. I'm a Galilean, you know, and to question his call and uh, to not go into the ministry. And yet God pays for what he orders. God gifted him to enable him to do the things that he had called him to do. And, and the reason I bring this up is because I limited the horizons to which I could be at uh, early on in my life because I thought so poorly of myself. It's a false pride, really. I thought so poorly of myself. I thought I cannot go into the ministry. God's call of the ministry was clearly upon my life, but it scared me to death. The idea of being a pastor. And so I resisted that. And you may think poorly of yourself, but don't limit what God can achieve through your life. uh, If God has called you to do something beyond your abilities, really, that's what he always does. He always calls us to do something that are beyond our abilities. That's how his grace is magnified. Right. Point C highlights another aspect of James's life that maybe perhaps forms some of the negative opinions of Jesus. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to examine his unbelief, some of the sins that flowed from that. 
But James's bitterness against Jesus that can be seen in John chapter 7, Mark chapter 3, may have in part at least stemmed from the fact that Jesus inherited the business from Daddy. And Mark 6, with his relatives, his former um, uh, neighbors all around him, it is only Jesus who is called the carpenter. Now, wait a minute. They're carpenter, but it's Jesus who's singled out as being the carpenter of that village. And so James doesn't even have the honor of owning the business. Perhaps he was an employee. We're not told exactly. But throughout Christ's ministry, it is Jesus who was in the limelight, not James. We're going to see next week that this led James to dishonor Jesus, Mark 6, verse 4, to try to commit him to an insane asylum, Mark 3, verse 21, to reject his ministry and unbelief, John chapter 7. And I'm not going to read between the lines in terms of all that that might mean, but there are two things that I think are quite clear. In John 7, it makes clear that Jesus, I mean, James does not appreciate being second fiddle. He's frustrated with Jesus. Second, Jesus has much more outward success than James does. And this can lead to all kinds of jealousy and strife that we will look at under Roman numeral three next week. But right now, let me just quickly make two applications. The first is that we ought not to be jealous over the achievements of our siblings. We ought to rejoice over their successes, even if they're doing things way beyond what we have been able to ever achieve. Jealousy does not befit the Christian life. It will rob you of joy and it will make you start making the kind of misjudgments that they made in Mark 3 and John 7. Uh, one person said, if the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, then start appreciating the fact that you still live above ground to see it. <laughs> Uh, we need to have perspective. The second application that I would like to make is that callings can change. I'm sure that G Jesus, James, and Jude were all good carpenters. They obviously were called by God to do that, to engage in that for 30 years of his life. I think Jesus was following his, call, following his calling for 30 years. He wasn't out of his calling. And so it was an important calling, and yet God's call can change in our lives as well. There are seasons of life. And just because you are good at something, don't argue against the call of God in your life if He is calling you to make a change. Let's move on to one more circumstance from James's early life. He came from a large family, and we're going to end with this point today. Um, we aren't told how many sisters he had, but the plural is used of sisters in both Matthew 13 and Mark 6. So it's clear he had at least two, right? Uh, it may have been more sisters. We're not told. Let me read um, Matthew 13, 55 through 56. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this not, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And so it appears that Mary and Joseph had at least seven children, possibly more, and this passage has created great controversy down through history among those who believe that marital relations are sinful and that Mary was sinless. Now, you may not have realized that, but there are a lot of church fathers who believed marital relations were sinful. It was a necessary evil to get children. But once your wife got pregnant, you quit and you apologize, ask for forgiveness for this. It was a very distorted view of marriage. And I can show you several of the fathers and some of the quotes from, uh, from their lives. 
And so they came up with two theories as to how Mary could become, could be a perpetual virgin. The first theory is held by the Greek Orthodox Church, who teach that Joseph had children by a previous marriage, and they were brought in as stepchildren. And so in that sense, they were the children of Mary, but they were uh, stepchildren. Then the other theory held by the Roman Catholics is that these brothers and sisters are cousins or uncles, and that the name or the term brothers and sisters can very loosely be applied to any re- relative. A nice try, it just does not work. Um, and you don't need the James Ossuary to prove that. The James Ossuary really has caused a lot of distress amongst uh, Roman Catholics. Uh, John Meyer, um, professor at Notre Dame University, said the Ossuary puts the nail in the coffin of the cousin argument. Now, let me just quickly make a case just from the Bible. Just from the Bible. My first argument is that the New Testament calls them brothers and sisters seven times. Let me list the passages. Matthew 12:46, Matthew 13:55 to 56, Mark 3:31, Mark 6:3, Luke 8:19 to 21, Acts 1:14, Galatians 1:19. So that's seven passages, five different authors. Now it's just inconceivable to me that every author intended to convey the idea that these were uncles or cousins. Maybe one author might have been confusing, but five authors using this language, there's perfectly good language that they could have used to say this was a cousin or this was a this was an uncle over there. I've heard Roman Catholics say there is no Greek word for cousin, but just look up Colossians 4:10 where Mark is called the cousin of Barnabas. Uses a different word. Uh, others claim that James was an uncle. There, there is no New Testament word to convey that. But Liddell and Scott give three Greek words for uncle. Now, of course, even if there weren't any Greek words for uncle or for cousin, all they'd have to do is say Mary's brother's son. Or if it was an uncle, Mary's brother. That's pretty easy. And uh, so for five different authors, seven different places to be saying brothers and sisters, I think that is a real stretch to say, you know, this was a confusing way. No, it would be deliberate confusion. And so it's my view that we should take the Bible at face value. And based on these words, we should at a minimum accept the Greek Orthodox view that they were at least stepbrothers. I think their, their view has problems as well but at least that they were stepbrothers, or we should accept the Protestant view that they were the brothers uh, from Mary. Uh, That's all that we need, the words brothers and sisters. By the way, there is extra biblical evidence of this as well. Josephus, I gave the quote earlier, Josephus refers to James as being the brother of Jesus. He was a contemporary of them. So based on the language itself, it's uh, quite obvious. Now, a second argument is that perpetual virginity would be contrary to the law and inconceivable in the first century context. And there are several arguments you can give to your Roman Catholic buddies. Uh, First, Matthew 1.20 calls Mary Joseph's wife. And Scripture is quite clear. There's Paul words it in 1 Corinthians 7.34. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. Now, if Scripture wanted to communicate perpetual virginity it would not have used the term wife. That would have just completely confused everything uh, that people would read. As many scholars have pointed out, a wife who took the vow of perpetual virginity would be a contradiction in terms. It would be a violation of their marriage vows right off the bat. That does not make sense. Second, turn to Matthew 1, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 
25, and this is speaking about Joseph. It says, And did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, two things to note here. First of all, it says that he was the firstborn, not the onlyborn. Now, by itself, that wouldn't prove anything. Okay, it's not a very strong argument. But in context, I think it is a strong argument. The context is that Joseph did not know her until after a point of time. And that point of time was when her firstborn uh, was born. Now, taken in context, the implication is clear that he did know her after that, uh, after you know, there was more born after the firstborn. Now, look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Before they came together implies that they did indeed come come together. But before that happened, she was found with child. And only the three false Roman Catholic doctrines of the sinlessness of Mary, the sinfulness of sex, and the perpetual virginity of Mary would make anyone read those two verses differently. Now, Scripture is quite clear that God blesses and commands marital relations. Um, God also makes clear that Mary was not sinless. She herself says she needed a Savior. That's Luke 1, verse 47. Thirdly, the word virgin is only connected with Mary prior to the birth of of Jesus. After the birth, she's never again called a virgin. In fact, Jesus uses a quite different word in John 2, verse 4. He does not call her a virgin. He calls her woman. Quite a different word. Fourth, ordinarily, Scripture only allows abstinence from marriage relations for a short time. Let me read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, likewise also the wife to her husband. Uh, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, while this does not preclude God from doing something unusual in the case of of Mary, and I think there was something unusual there. It says clearly he abstained for nine months. One would expect that this law would ha- would have been kept if they were truly husband and wife, unless the Scripture indicates else uh, otherwise. And there is nowhere in the Scripture that it indicates uh, otherwise. No evidence. I've run across Roman Catholic wives who have told me that they have taken... Partway through their marriage, they've taken a perpetual uh, vow of abstinence. And they're married. Thinking, boy, that is, that is a very strange, a breaking of their vows. I ran across one man uh, who did exactly the same thing. He took a perpetual vow of uh, abstinence. That is a false view of marriage and holiness. Hebrews 13.4 tells us, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. And yet this theology turns something honorable into something to be avoided if possible. It just does not square with Scripture. Uh, The other thing to notice from this passage is that marriage, this is the 1 Corinthians 7 passage, is that marriage relations are spoken of as a debt that is owed to the spouse. In verse 3, the Greek word for due to is aphelen, that which is owed. And verse 5 says, do not deprive one another again. So it would be inconceivable in the first century that a Jewish married couple would enter into a perpetual vow 
of uh, abstinence. And sometimes you can read for yourselves the explicit commands uh, for marriage relations that are given in your outlines. It's uh, under point number six. Uh, I've read uh, some uh, Roman Catholic apologists this past week who have said, well, while marital relations are consistent with marriage, they're not commanded. But you read those things, those verses there, you'll see they are commanded. It's not just a command to be fruitful and multiply, but, you know, it's, it's commands to uh, be ravished, uh, to, to, to love, uh, to uh, have relations with. It's just so, so clear. And I think so. Just apart from James's ossuary, there are reasons enough to reject the idea that James was not really the brother of Christ, but was rather a cousin. Now, let's look at some applications. First of all, there are no sinless people apart from Jesus. Mary was not sinless. James was not sinless. In fact, next week we're going to look at some rather embarrassing stuff from James's early life. I'm sure he was pretty embarrassed over it. And he overcame that by God's grace. That's the important point. There is this constant tendency for the church to want to put people up on a pedestal. You know, they, they, they want their heroes to not really have the kind of defects that other people say that they have. They don't want their heroes spotted. I've seen it in politics. People are very quick to point out everything that's wrong about the other candidate. But as soon as somebody points out something wrong about your candidate, oh boy, you're resistant to that. Okay, that's hero worship. And it's not helpful. When our children are our heroes, we don't like to hear other people pointing out the bad deeds that our kids have been engaged in. Right? It's not helpful for the church. Now, in contrast to Roman Catholic concepts of sainthood, the Bible portrays all of its heroes as fallen men and women who have character flaws that we can identify with. That's why they are so helpful. Many of them become great, yes, but they become great through God's grace working through their, 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 their weakness. So we need less hero worship and more God worship. We need less confidence in men and more confidence in God. James was a hero of the faith, but he became a hero through faith in God's grace. A second obvious application is that God honors marital relations. Even Mary had them. Certainly James had them. There are Roman Catholics who to this day uh, insist, perpetuate the myth that James was a celibate all of his life. It is simply not true. In 1 Corinthians 9.5, and we're looking at his marriage next week, but in 1 Corinthians 9.5, Paul asks the Corinthians, Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right? Paul knew that Barnabas enjoyed the privileges of marriage. And there are other passages that talk about women needing to enjoy the privileges of marriage. They are submitted to God. They need to be enjoyed before God. Next week, uh, I want to look at the early unbelief of James, his conversion, his subsequent ministry and death. I think there's a lot that can be learned from that. That's why I'm saving it for another Sunday. But let me end by mentioning the large family that James grew up with. At least seven children. Seven children. This is a great privilege. It's a blessing from God. It's also a responsibility before God because the command given in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply, which is repeated elsewhere, has never been revoked. In fact, it's repeated again in the New Testament. First Timothy 5. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, 
Manage the house. Give no opportunity the adversary to speak reproachfully. His command is to bear children. Now think of the difference we could make if Christians had seven children on average. I know not everybody can do that. Uh, but uh, if we could have seven children on average, we could take back our nation in a matter of time. We'd be outnumbering the Egyptians. What an incredible blessing that that would be. Uh, statistics show that pagans are having fewer and fewer children all of the time. In fact, there's more and more, what's it called, uh, sterility because of uh, loose living uh, where they can't have children. And then they're killing themselves off with uh, abortion and homosexuality and AIDS. And if, if Christians were multiplying as they ought, they have the potential for taking back this great nation. Now, unfortunately, what's happened the pagans, the only way that they can multiply is by recruitment. They're not multiplying on their own. They can only do it by recruitment. So where do they recruit? It's in the government schools. And who's supplying all the recruits? It's Christians. This is where the Exodus mandate is so important. We are willingly giving our children to these people who can't reproduce so that they can, that they can hive off of us a whole group of people to give another generation of humanists. It's a sad tragedy and we've got to get people out of the government schools. 80% of the statistics actually is a little bit higher now than 80%. I forget exactly where it is, but at least 80% of Christians leave the faith completely between the ages of 18 and 25. They don't attend church. That is sad. But that statistic goes hand in hand with how many people are being sent into the government schools. That was a rabbit trail, but uh, we're going to finish the study on James next week. But I do encourage you, do, do your own studies in your family on the characters of the Bible. Very, very encouraging. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these biblical characters are great illustrations of what to avoid, what to follow. First of all, what to avoid. 1 Corinthians 10 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Second, what things to imitate? Verse 11 says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for James and uh, for the humility that You wrought in his life, for the power of prayer that You wrought in his life. We thank You, Father, for the influence that he was able to have in the church and he used it responsibly. And I pray that we would have a faith that you can use us, whether in small ways and big ways, it matters not, but we want to be used by you, my Father. And so I pray for this, your people, that you would grant them grace from on high and that you would cause us to be part of this great transformation of the church and transformation of America, doing what we can to advance the cause of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.